day, everybody. Tom Block and Keith Jones with you. This is Front Row Knowles, Florida State. Survived and advances. We went to basketball terminology for the win over Pitt, Keith, but all things considered, you take the win, you turn the page, you're still unbeaten, and you get ready for Miami week. Uh, you do, you do, and yes, you do. Uh, 15 consecutive wins. Uh, first time appearing in an ACC championship game since 2014. That's really hard to believe. FSU, uh, nine, ten years, depending on how you count it, uh, and uh, probably will be facing Louisville. But uh, a very interesting game at Pittsburgh uh, that you could uh, you could make the argument positive and negative and have good points on either side. Do you agree? Sure. Where would you like to start, Mr. Grouchy Pants? <laughs> well, let's start with the positive. Let's start with the positive. You know, one of the things that's interesting about this team is that they they allow themselves to get their backs up against the wall because uh, this could have very easily been a 14 nothing start uh, if not for that fumble at the goal line. At the same time, it could have very easily been a 17-7 or a 17-0 start in FSU's favor. And the point being, however it plays out, and I sure wish it wouldn't, but however it plays out in that first quarter, FSU has found a way to respond, and you've got to respect that. I agree. I think it was closer to being a rout than it was a loss, because I think even if Pitt got to 14, they didn't have enough offense, and Florida State would have overcome that. And conversely, had Florida State not fumbled at midfield on the opening drive or on that night. It's hard to go 90 yards and not get points out of it, but they had a 90-yard drive and turned it over on downs. If you score on either of those drives or certainly both, then you take Pitt out of what it wants to do from a game plan standpoint and you make that quarterback throw, they're going to start turning the ball over and that game is going to get out of hand. But it didn't. To your point, and I can look it up, Keith, we've talked about Florida State's responses all year, right, and Jordan Travis in particular – take me a minute to dig this up but after Pitt scored to take the seven zip lead is when Florida State went on its first scoring drive so whatever it is about the fiber of this team when pressed uh, they respond very very well they just continue to do that you, your fear is that at some point in time the odds will catch up with you but as ingrained as this is and, and I go all the way back to uh, I mean this would have driven me nuts as a player Tommy I mean, you talk about how times have changed. I mean, if every day I went out to practice, it was work, 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 work. The way it is preached at Florida State right now, I'm afraid that would have gotten very old with me very quick. But these kids have bought into it. I'm not saying it's a bad approach. I'm just saying the game was different. I mean, we played a lot for emotion and fun and, you know, that type of thing, you know, back in the day. Uh, and these kids treat it as, um, you know, a, a vocation. And as a result, they have trained and been trained that when they get their backs up against the wall, there's only one way to respond. Three years ago, five years ago, they would have folded. Now they're resilient. It's It's been a neat transformation in that sense. Yeah, I'm just looking. So Florida State falls behind seven zip. And again, not at some point, but on the ensuing drive, they go 75 yards to tie the game. And Jordan Travis on that drive was four of five for 58 yards. He ran two times for six yards, including the touchdown on the sneak. And you're tied up at seven, seven, just like that. It was a 10 play 75 yard drive that took four twenty eight. That's if you pull out the box score from every game this year, 
as soon as the opposition scores, Florida State scores on the next drive. It's amazing the way it's worked this year. Not to correct you, Tommy, but sometimes they don't wait until the next drive. Sometimes they score on the kickoff. And I think there may be one against Duke. It may have taken a couple drives to get the lead there in the second half. But generally speaking, they've they've done that. So if I told you before the game, Keith, and we did our show last week, that Keon Coleman was not going to play and Johnny Wilson was not going to play, you would have said what? I would have said, uh-oh. I would have said, uh-oh. And I said, oh, no, a number of times during the game because – if you want to be critical of one thing from the offensive standpoint, um, there were there were opportunities over the middle of the field early in the ball game, and and in my opinion, FSU relied a little too much on the outside of the field. You know, asking Douglas uh, to to run the the back shoulder throws that that uh, Keon and Johnny are so good at, but you got to remember those kids are six four and six seven, and and Jukai is, is Jones height. 5'10", 5'11". That's a completely different throw for Jordan. And while he can make it, you can go back and on at least two occasions, he was trying to hit that back shoulder throw with Douglas, and it wasn't as close as it should have been. And my point simply being, with those guys out, I would have preferred that Coach Atkins and Coach Norvell had gone to attacking the middle of the field, particularly as much blitzing, run blitzing as Pittsburgh was doing. They did in the second half a little exactly. bit. I mean, they started, exactly. they started with the screen game. In the second half, they moved to the slants. Uh, you're right that he missed Ja'Kai early on, but it was not surprising to me that Ja'Kai is actually who he depended on because if you look at the other receivers, Destin Hill's in his first year. Other guys have not played as much. Ja'Kai has been here the entire time Jordan Travis has been the starting quarterback, and so those two have worked together a lot, so it didn't surprise me that he was the guy who – who wound up stepping up, but it was well, that's just... not my point. My point is he's a slot receiver. He's not right. a wide receiver. Right, right. Well, and poor Tier. And my point is that that Tron, who's been hurt this year, has not spent as much time, neither neither has Williamson working with Jordan as as Jakai has. There's just a little bit of a chemistry there. We've seen that in previous years. I mean, Jakai has had several big catches during his career out of the slot kind of the out-and-up type stuff. He did it against Miami two years ago on that game-winning drive. He did it against Notre Dame. He's, he's had a lot of big plays in his in his career. It wasn't just Keon and Johnny who were out, though. I mean, Deuce Spann didn't play. Hakeem Williams wasn't there. You could see Destin Hill was hobbled. I mean, they played Joshua Burrell some snaps yesterday and Ventravius Jacobs, and those guys never see the light of day right now. So it just goes to show how far down on the depth chart Florida State was. And they they exploited the depth at uh, at the tight end position with Bell and and Morlock and and um, oh gosh the other ones leave the one touch Marquiston right just call uh, him biscuit just call him biscuit I'm not calling him biscuit he's bigger than I am he he hasn't given me authority to do that <laughs> speaking of which you got to credit them for running that play again where they line him up at left tackle and they. Uh, they do the quick huddle and get that score. I mean, he's wide open. It's worked twice against Oklahoma in the bowl game, and here it was really effective. Watching it live, I was in that end zone, and and I didn't see them line up that way, but he was so wide open. I wondered if that's what they had done, and it wasn't until after the game because I didn't right. see a replay in stadium that I figured out that that's, that's what they had done. Yeah, and they ran, uh, they ran a toss back one time. They ran the reverse toss back one time. I mean, 
there was shades of Sandlot occasionally, uh, particularly in the second half. Um, I don't necessarily like that. I'd rather you'd line up and do it the right way. But when Coleman's out and Span's out and 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 um, uh, Wilson's out, you know, maybe you do pull out a trick or two along the way. So Norvell said afterwards that all the receivers are close to being back. My understanding with Keon is he will be back next week. I think Johnny is trending that way. As a side note, I don't know if you watched the Miami game last night, but Miami lost a starting cornerback in that game. They carried him off the field, so I can't imagine that he's going to be available this week. And Florida State is going to get its receivers back, so we'll we'll certainly take that. Other guys that didn't play yesterday, up front you didn't have Robert Scott. Defensively, I don't know the timeline on Dennis Briggs, but that rotation in the middle with the tackles has changed with him out. And Jarian Jones didn't play yesterday. I don't know if you noticed that, but Kevin Knowles was actually back as the slot corner at times. He played some safety, but there were also coverages where he was the slot corner and there were two other safeties on the field because Jarian didn't play, although he was there and dressed and so probably available if, if truly needed. Well, and there were a couple of busts. We've talked all along through the first eight games of the season. You really haven't seen opponent. Uh, receivers running free on that long, long pass that Fentrell finally got back there and punched the ball out. Um, You know, that's the first time in a long time you've seen something at least that wide open. And when you start, you know, having to move players around and and people with a little bit less experience, I don't care who you're playing. This is Division I football. They've got guys that can throw the ball, guys that can run, and guys that can catch the ball. It will catch up with you. So um, certainly that was noticeable. I need to apologize to Fentrell. I talked to him after the game, and the way I asked the question assumed that he busted the coverage. I said you got, I said you got beat, but then you recovered, and he very politely said, "Yeah, there was a mix-up with the safety." I hadn't seen a replay. I don't know if it's the safety's fault or Deuce's fault, but he just answered the question, went on. Um, it's, but he did say there was miscommunication there with the safety, so I, I don't know who that was on, or maybe he thought the safety was getting deeper, or what. I don't know. I'd have to go back. I haven't even looked at that play on replay yet as we're taping. How about the fact that he did not give up, however, Keith, and he was able – you've seen guys turning over and crossing the goal line. I don't think I've ever seen it at the end of an 82-yard play. When the play was actually happening and I was watching it, my mind was going, get him down, get him down. Don't let him get in the end zone. No way I was even thinking fumble the ball or something would happen with the ball. And then when it happened, uh, I didn't think the call on the field was correct. I thought he had crossed the goal line. Obviously, on the replay, and I'm sure you even, uh, those in the crowd, if if Pitt would have shown it, uh, would have been clear on the big board. It it was clearly a fumble. And here's the other interesting thing, and I don't honestly know the rule on this, Tommy. Uh, And when you apologize to Fentrell asking this question, he was laying out of bounds. Cypress was. And the ball was laying in the field, but in the end zone. He he literally pushed himself so that his body was in the field of play before he touched the ball. I don't know if he was intentionally thinking, you know, if I touch the ball and I'm out of bounds, you know how they do that with kickoffs and some other things. There's some uniqueness to the rule, and I do not know it. But it was obvious to me that he intentionally – was paying attention that that's a pretty high football iq i hadn't seen the replay that he got back in bounds 
I knew he was out of bounds. And I had that conversation with Jeff Colhane on the bus on the way to the airport because I wasn't sure it might it be an illegal touching or something. But an offense, a, a wide receiver would have to reestablish himself for sure before touching it. A defender well, that's, in the air, though. that's in the air. That's a pass. Right. This right. ball was laying on the ground, but I don't know what the rule is. But your point is that he did make sure he got back in bounds first and then it appeared. It appeared. I'm going to give him credit for that. Well, Pitt's coach was not very pleased with the refs. That was one of the plays he was upset about. I guess, was there a face mask on that play as he was stripping the ball out? There was a potential. He did get his left hand up there. Uh, and yeah. there were a couple of calls that Pitt did have go against them. Um, there, there were a couple of other times when Florida State's defensive lineman, I know um, – uh, it was called one time, but Florida's defensive line, Florida State's defensive linemen, they were they were really getting their hands up into the face mask and the grills of Pitt's offensive. And then that unsportsmanlike uh, against Pitt that put them out of field goal position, I mean, I, I thought that could have been a no call. I mean, I, I I didn't see why there needed to be a flag thrown on that one. Well, that's what Narduzzi was upset about, but we weren't there to hear what was said, right? But well, it is what it is. It's a Again, I'm old school, line. Tommy. Uh, our fans, uh, even though this is a radio show, uh, our fans do not want to know what the language was like yesterday or 47 years ago. Uh, language is unimportant to me unless you're directing it at an official. Uh, I, you know, you don't throw flags on language unless it's directed at an official. That's just my stand. Another tangent here, but in our Uber ride, uh, the radio crew goes before the team to the game, so we're taking an Uber. And, of course, this was the case, Keith, but the Uber driver played football at the same time as Monk and his brother and asked us, uh, talked about the Bonasorts on the short drive to the stadium because he was at a rival high school, and he talked about how Monk and uh, – is it Charles? Is that his brother's name? Charles, Chaz, the, yeah. Charles, yep, yeah. Yep. Chucky. He called him Chucky. No, I think about that's it. what was his old name. I don't know when he went to Chaz, but when I knew him, he was Chucky. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, go figure that here we are in Pittsburgh. And of course the Uber driver has Bonasort stories to tell. And how about um, this? You know, as, as close as, as we got, Monk and I got and Bobby and, and all of us, Chucky actually won a national championship. He was on the 76 Pittsburgh team that won the national championship. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. He played special teams. He wasn't a regular contributor. But he's got a ring. You know this because you played against Dan Marino and excuse me, and Pitt during your playing days. Uh, and I was aware of the tradition, but when you go up there, and first of all, they're playing at the Steelers Stadium, so it's a really nice stadium. Although I don't know that, that helps from a college football program standpoint that you're going off campus. You know, they used to have a stadium on campus. But you look at all their – they have 10 Pro Football Hall of Famers, and they claim nine national championships. Now, eight of them were before 1939, and then they have the one in 76. But when you look at the names and you see Hugh Green and Bill Fralick and Dan Marino and Mark May and Larry Fitzgerald, I mean, it, and Tony Dorsett, it, it's an impressive lineage. And, and that town – uh, really a football, I mean, it's a steelworker town, right? but it's a football town. You can wake up and you can feel the energy. Everybody you pass on the street is representing one team. They're asking you about the game. So they're, they're very prideful about their teams there. And something I didn't know way off on a tangent, obviously Pittsburgh's campus is, is the equivalent of downtown and they have the very tall tower of learning or whatever tower of knowledge. Uh, that's the, the, the key, keystone. 
But Pitt actually practices at the same facility that the Steelers practice at. So not only do they play in the same stadium, they practice at the same facility. So every day those kids from the University of Pittsburgh are mingling with Pittsburgh Steelers because it's the same site. I, I did not know that until I watched the broadcast yesterday. I didn't know that either. Well, they they do uh, – I mean, this is – so something about Pitt, we know they're down this year and they switch quarterbacks not as good as what they, they have been. But Pitt had not lost a November football game in, in some time. I mean, Pat Narduzzi's team – and that that's the team that had been the, the top team against the run in the ACC – at least one of the, the top two or three teams the last three or four years. I mean, they're really stout against it, even if they don't have quite the talent that they've had previously. And I know people are concerned about FSU's lack of ability to run the football. I mean, that's not changing. This We're nine games in, and this year's team going to have to throw to set up the run. And it got compounded yesterday, Keith, because as soon as Pitt figured out that FSU didn't have Keon or Johnny, they were already stacking the box. And now you're saying we're definitely going to load up the box and make you beat us over the top. Let me just echo your point. We've got to remember that two years ago, Pitt played in the ACC championship game. And won it. Exactly. And and so they're a, they're a reputable opponent that's just a little bit down right now. No, I agree with you. It's, it's uh, you know, I think, too, and, of course, Coach Novell and Coach Atkins would never admit this, and they shouldn't. But uh, I just think in that first half yesterday, they were being very, very conservative not to do anything to put that offense in a bad situation. They were able to get in at halftime, uh, make some adjustments, understand that Pitt was going to blitz. Pitt didn't put seven or eight in the box. They just always rushed five or six and did it quite effectively. And then FSU came out, exploited the center of the field, middle of the field a little bit more. Uh, Trey got unleashed, although it was a run straight up the middle, but they were in a blitz and the linebacker took a wrong gap. You can ask FSU how that works when you do it against an opponent, i.e. Wake Forest last time out. You know, it busted. And um, it, it's just interesting to watch that chess game and and, and uh, the things that go on. These, these are uh, really, really interesting games to me from an X's O standpoint. But can you fault? Norvell and Atkins for having a conservative approach. No, 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 the... no, not at all. I'm just saying yeah. I, I would do the same thing, but we need to remember that that's part of the reason it's happening. It's intentional. Yeah. I mean, that's just no other way to put it. And the final score is 24 seven. Now it was 24 seven going into the fourth quarter. And I felt like they would get to that 30 point plateau. The spread was 22 and a half or so. And as we know, the game ended with them at the two or one yard line, right? So right. if you if you score there, you get over 30 and you cover the spread. The spread would have never been 22 and a half if the odds makers knew that Keon Coleman wasn't going to play. It would have been much lower. Uh, side note, Pittsburgh folks were, were offended by that. I don't know that they've seen many visitors come into their stadium and be a 22 and a half point favorite as, as FSU was. What did you think about end game there where Florida State was – you could tell they were still kind of trying to get to that 30, but then when the play clock was under 40, they said, okay, we just got to finish this out and not, not run it one more time. It's uh, it's the reason why uh, I, and by no means am I ever saying I could have been, but it's the re a reason why I would never have been successful as a head football coach at the collegiate level. Cause I'd have been calling timeouts. I'd have been clocking the ball. I would have been scoring. I would not have let the clock run out. Now, if I'm at the 40 
and it would take a 40-yard pass to score, that's different. But I'm inside the five, I'm scoring. That's why people wouldn't like me. Sadly, Keith, so the streak is one thing. The the objective is to win. FSU won the football game. That wasn't in, in doubt. The streak is another thing. But but sadly, the playoff committee will not value Florida State's win as much because 24 to 7 is not as dominant as 31 to 7. And that's just the truth of the matter. And it's not going to surprise me, Tommy. I was wrong in the first playoff release. I thought FSU would be number two, and they ended up being number four. What I'm scared about in this release is they're going to drop them to number five. And if that happens, there's still time to rectify it. What I'm scared about is now that Alabama is going to represent the SEC West, if Alabama beats Georgia in the SEC title game, we're going to be back to the argument of two SEC teams. And so FSU needs to win out for sure. I don't know that you can take two one-loss teams in that scenario over unbeaten teams, but I was really hoping that LSU would win. And I'm going to go on another tangent, Keith. If FSU had a defender hit an ACC quarterback, as happened to Jaden Daniels last night in that Alabama-LSU game, he not only would have been ejected for targeting, they might have petitioned to throw him out of the league. I've never seen a more blatant targeting, and now Jaden Daniels, he's in the concussion protocol. Who knows if he'll play against Florida this week. I'm not saying the guy did it on purpose, but the inconsistencies in the officiating continue to drive me crazy. Uh, For once, Mr. Block, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And Gary Danielson is saying, well, maybe they should review it for target. Maybe. There's no maybe about that. It is. You need a review. I don't know. And and why would he and, – and the other thing, we're way off on tangents now, but why would Kelly send him back in and then he got confused and, and couldn't make the call and they had to take a timeout and then they put him back in the, the, the observation tent? That's a whole – that's a whole other question. But, yeah, to finish that one, Keith, I do have concerns. I was really hoping that LSU would win that game and then that whoever won the West would beat Georgia and everything would be down a little bit for the SEC. But credit Alabama, they're right back where they always are, right? They're going to represent the West, and Georgia will end up representing the East, and we'll have the same game that that people expected, and it'll end up being a really good football game. And uh, if, if Alabama wins, I just don't see an, a scenario. Let's just talk this through and forget about FSU. If Alabama wins, I guess, and you only took one SEC team, it'd have to be Alabama because they just beat Georgia, right? One would think. One would think. Yeah. Uh, I was disappointed. I mean, Alabama's losses to Texas. Texas probably should have lost to Kansas State, who had the ball at the three-yard line for three plays in overtime and didn't score a touchdown, opted not to kick a field goal. There was a little while where I thought Washington might lose to USC. Ohio State was losing at the half to Rutgers. I mean, there were a lot of things that were out there for the taking, but none of them none of them came to fruition. Uh, I do want to state this, though, Keith, because this will be lost when we, when we get to Tuesday night and the playoff rankings come out. FSU scored more points against LSU than Alabama did. They gave up fewer to LSU than Alabama did. The quarterback accounted for more touchdowns than Alabama's quarterback did. They won by more points than Alabama did, and they weren't playing at home like Alabama was, and they didn't knock LSU's starting quarterback out of the game for the last quarter, and yet all of that will be forgotten when on Tuesday night they talk about how great Alabama's win was over the same LSU team that FSU beat worse two months ago. Remember that that is coming this week. 
Okay, you heard it right here, folks. Also, they held LSU to fewer yards than Alabama did. Are you done yet? You get my point, Keith. You know this is what they're going to say. They already said last week that FSU's win, they, they discounted it because it was too long ago. That's more or less what Boo Corrigan said last week, that, well, that was earlier in the season, so that doesn't count. Well, and we'll talk more about this on Wednesday, but I'm not sure that FSU is in a terribly good position uh, for next week with Miami losing. Uh, I would much have preferred Miami to come out of that game winning by three touchdowns than than having that continued uh, chip on their shoulder. Well, I think we talked about this a little on on our show during the middle of the week, Keith. The the revenue is one thing, but it is exhausting into the revenue and the disparity in terms of why Florida state fans get tired of the ACC. Why can't FSU have nice things? We've got to spend the next month defending everything they've done on the football field, because candidly, the ACC is just not good in football and never really has been. I mean, when's the last time NC state or North Carolina or Duke did anything of note in college football or Syracuse or Boston college? Louisville's got a chance this year, but it's been a while for Louisville. Georgia it's Tech. Been two, it's been two decades for Miami. I mean, Virginia is abysmal. I don't know for the life of me. Another tangent, Keith. I'm good at this today. When we talk about conference realignment, I don't understand why Virginia gets thrown in there as somebody that would be attractive to other conferences. There are more people watching this Zoom right now than watch Virginia football, Keith. <laughs> So I have no idea why that's an attractive. I know they're a great academic institution. That doesn't mean anybody's going to watch them play football. Well, let's change gears. And speaking of the Zoom call, let's play a few bills. But it's time now for our uh, most uh, – I'm going to even use another word. The marketing folks at Prime Reading Bank are going to get upset with me. But I'm going to use the most stand-up-when-your-number's-called duo of the game against – Pittsburgh. I'm going to take my hats off um, to Ja'Kai Douglas and Kyle Morlock. All right. So you got Wilson and Coleman out. All Ja'Kai and Kyle did was they accounted for 10 receptions for 195 yards. Uh, Last I checked, that's right at the production of Coleman and Wilson on a per game basis. Uh, The run by Morlock when he split those two defenders was amazing. Uh, Douglas made some outstanding catches. Again, I'd use him in the slot more than in the wideout, but that one throw to the outside where he, he was looking inside and adjusted back outside right at the sideline was unbelievable. So I'm going to call that our, our dy- dynamic duo of the week or our outstanding performance by um, understudies of the week or whatever you want to call it, uh, presented by Prime Meridian Bank. And speaking of Prime Meridian, stop by and see them. They've got four locations, two in Tallahassee, one down in Crawfordville, one in Lakeland. Uh, check them out on the web, www.trymybank.com. Uh, Prime Meridian Bank, some good folks. Go by and see them. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Uh, I was just impressed with both Morlock and Douglas. Douglas has been hurt. We, we've seen him do some things in prior times. Uh, but those two put on an outstanding performance. And Travis, uh, again, threw for over 300 yards and, and a bulk of it going to those guys. Yeah, but he had a season high in passing yards without Coleman and Wilson. I mean, that's not something. Isn't that something? That's, that's, that's not insignificant to be able to do that. Um, yeah, all things considered, I don't think you can argue with it. It still was twenty-four to seven. And and here's one, Keith. Uh, credit to FSU. Let me take me a minute to pull this up. So they lost the thirty-point plus offensive scoring streak, right? 
But the defense has now not allowed 30 points in a game this season, and that nine-game streak is the longest active in the ACC and the fourth longest in the country as we go into the game against Miami. And in today's world, where everybody's scoring basketball scores versus old-timey three yards on a cloud of dust, that's quite an accomplishment. I'm going to just read the Jordan Travis ledger again, Keith, in case the Heisman voters listen to Front Row Knowles, right? Season-high passing yards. He's had multiple touchdowns in 16 straight games, which is the longest active streak in the country. Second longest in the ACC over the last 20 years, behind only Trevor Lawrence, who had 17 in a row. Uh, Kenny Pickett also had 16. He's equaled that. Here's one he's going to get this week. He has 97 career touchdowns, which means if he accounts for three against Miami, he's going to hit the century mark against the Canes. And I'm pretty sure that's going to happen this week. What else? He's the only player in the country that has at least seven rushing touchdowns in four straight years. That's not too bad. I mean, it goes on and on and on. He's fourth on FSU's career list now with 31 career rushing touchdowns. Fourth on that list, and he's behind, like, Dalvin Cook, Work Dunn, and Greg Allen, not necessarily in that order. And then it's Jordan Travis for rushing touch. That's that's a pretty good list right there. Well, let me let me pick apart one thing you said that jumped out at me real quick. Uh, Pickett and Lawrence. Last time I checked, both of those were starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Where Are they not? Uh, that would be true. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's another conversation. And when we get to draft time, we'll have Charles Davis on and, and talk about that. I know he doesn't project as your classic NFL quarterback, but he's worked so hard. I just wouldn't bet against him. There's, there is still room for improvement. And this is really nitpicky, Keith. He's so competitive. He's got to throw the ball away. When you're 17 yards behind the line of scrimmage, sometimes it's okay to just throw the ball out of bounds and live for another down. You know, the thing that's remarkable to me about Travis uh, is, you know, I equate him, you know, you, you put him in the category with Mahomes and um, uh, Lamar Jackson. And I don't know if Burroughs is in that same thing, but it goes all the way back to the, you know, the Michael Vicks and, and you know, the, the quarterbacks that you, you say can run real, real well and then have really developed their passing technique. And by no means am I saying that that Jordan Travis should equate Mahomes or or Lamar Jackson, but he's in that mold. So if he gets in the right place with the right coordinator and gets the the pieces around him that can help him, it would not surprise me if he didn't achieve some really, really nice success at the next level, even though he doesn't project, you know, by the by the numbers and the metrics uh, in some way, shape, form or fashion. You, you can't discount heart. You can't discount football IQ. And he's got both of those in, 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 in way, way, way big measure. No question. I was just looking through these notes. You know, Conrad Hussey had that interception and he forced a fumble. Uh, he looks like he's going to be a pretty good safety in the future for FSU, Keith. What, what do your eyes tell you as a former safety for FSU? He's got the tools, doesn't he? I mean, he's, size, he's from his size and his speed. And as you mentioned, when he when he's been in there, he's taken advantage of his opportunities. So yeah, I think he I think he has a very very bright future. He was gonna that was gonna be a pick six, by the way, if he doesn't lose his footing. I mean, the whole left side of the field was wide open. And uh, speaking of the field, we talked about this. You and I talked about this personally. They had resodded the interior portion between the hashes of that field. Did that show up in any way, shape, form, or fashion 
uh, during Might the game. Might have shown up on that interception because he was right in the resodded part where he lost his footing. But I didn't see a lot of slippage during the game overall. I know that the 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 skill players and uh, the linebackers, tight ends, I guess they wore different cleats than did the the bigger guys. Uh, and it's you can't change the length in the college game, but you can change the pattern on the bottom of the cleats, I guess. And so what I was told is that the pattern that the skill guys were wearing was going to fit better based on the state of the grass. I don't know if that's the length of the grass or the time of year or the texture. I don't know enough about it. But it's not like the NFL where you can go from a half inch to a one inch or something like that. But they did change the configuration on them. But I didn't really see a slippage issue in the game. <clears throat> when we first got Nike equipment, my sophomore or junior year, the, the shoe that was used was referred to as the four by four. So it had four cleats on the ball of your foot and four cleats on the heel of the foot. <clears throat> and that kind of became the norm. And I've not talked with anybody in years about that now, but I, I would be interested uh, in knowing when they change the pattern, usually not always, but usually when the grass is a little softer or a little higher, you go with a, a lesser number of cleats when it's when it's cut close or when you're on carpet prescription turf and that type of thing you have a, a larger number of cleats um there's how that uh, old wildwood mine works that would be my question if i had the opportunity to ask anybody yeah well i didn't i didn't do it i would have liked to have seen an example of each one you know so i could take a look at it but i but i didn't do that but i didn't other than the hussy play i don't remember slippage being that much of maybe there was there was a running back that that slipped uh, on a run up the middle I think I don't remember if it was Trey or but but it, it wasn't huge and glaring you know one thing that that could be huge Keith and sounds obvious you want Keon Coleman back to catch passes they need Keon Coleman back to catch punts as as well as as well, good see, as Jukai Tommy Tommy I wasn't even going to go there I wasn't going to bring it up because you always chastise me for it but if I have a criticism, and it's a big one with, with Douglas, catch the ball. It doesn't matter where it is. Catch the ball. Period. The end. I hear you. I hear you. It's, it's, it's hard to watch sometimes. I will say, so first of all, the only way you can practice is with live bullets, right? And you can do that all day long. And Ja'Kai was the first guy on the field yesterday catching punts. But you know what was not happening when he was catching punts? There no, weren't 11 guys. Exactly. There, wasn't a, there were not 11 guys running right at him as he was catching punts. Uh, Pitt's punter was very erratic, and that didn't help. So a lot of those punts were short. And as soon as you move up to catch a short punt, then he's going to hit one that's 30 yards over your head. So I know in talking to John Papuchis, he prefers a punter who booms it because you tend to outkick your coverage, but it gives your guy a chance to catch it without having guys in your face compared to running up and getting in traffic. Anyway, I, I'm pretty sure Keon will be back, but that was pretty glaring. I mean, and then the one on the sideline, he bobbled and fortunately went out of bounds. So the next punt, which was the one punt he actually had a chance to have a return on, he called for a fair catch as soon as it hit the punter's foot. He had his hand for a fair catch. You know well, what I mean? I'm firmly convinced it again, appropriate that they wouldn't admit it, but I guarantee you they have some kind of sign to the return man that simply says fair catch. It doesn't matter where it is. Well, it might not have been a sign there. They might have told him because at that point the game was wrapped up. It was like, look, no need for a return or fumble. Just catch the ball, call the fair catch. I agree. Um interestingly. 
Poa Feely on the is listed as the number two punt returner on the depth chart, but they they went with Douglas instead. And then Toa Feely, something happened to him late in the game. Hopefully he's okay. I, I don't know. I didn't see him go off, but I heard he went back to the locker room at some point in the second half. I don't know if they showed that on TV, but I did not notice that on TV, no. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully he's okay. Other than that, I think they they came out all right. Jordan was a little gimpy at the end, but it's Miami week. He'll be he'll be fine. Um, I do think they'll have Keon back, hopefully Johnny, hopefully Destin is a little bit better. Uh, I don't know about Hakeem Williams that they'll have him back yet. And as we're taping this, we don't have uh, the kickoff time for Miami, but you had mentioned that there's a pretty big game at noon already scheduled. Uh, so we may be looking at 3.30 or 7.30, I guess, would be the – That was a, that was my thought. Let me look real quick because I do have that up. Yeah, Michigan and Penn State is at noon on Fox this week. And so I don't know that they're going to counter-program FSU-Miami there. The thing, the thing we're waiting on is the Georgia-Ole Miss game, which is a CBS game. And I don't know who gets the right to pick which game, but probably the networks are negotiating on that because if that goes to 3.30, then Miami-FSU probably goes to night. And if that's a CBS-SEC night game, and there's a limit on how many night games that, that CBS can do then FSU might go to 3.30. That's just speculation. But, yeah, I just checked again as we're recording at 9, 10 in the morning on Sunday, and I don't see a kick time yet for the FSU-Miami game. Well, the bottom line, though, Tommy, is it's Miami week, and all that other stuff is important but ain't important. Yep. You could play the game at 3 o'clock in the morning at the old Centennial Field, and it wouldn't matter. Play in the Walmart parking lot, and we'll be there, right? Well, then the cleats would have to be real different. I'd probably be wearing tennis shoes. All right. On that note, we're done. He's Keith. I'm Tom. Join us this week. We'll preview Miami as we get ready for this matchup with the Canes. This is Front Row Knowles.